HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Caleb Ganser, wine director and managing partner of La Compagnie de Vins Surnaturel in New York City. We'll talk to Caleb about natural wines, what good hospitality is, and other exciting wines to drink now. We'll also taste... You know what? I think I'm going to do a blind taste test with Caleb you know, normally I announce the wine now. Let's see if uh, he could pick it out, because he's such a know-it-all. He makes his customers try to figure it out. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Caleb Ganser worked his way up as a sommelier at some of the best restaurants in New York City and Miami, including Flute. Restaurant Danielle, DBGB, DB Bistro Modern, and Eleven Madison. He now oversees one of the most exciting and interesting wine programs in New York City at Compagnie. Caleb was selected as one of Wine and Spirit's Best New Sommeliers of 2016 and recently as one of Food and Wine's 2017 Sommeliers of the Year where I also think he was the cover boy of that issue. Is that correct? Uh, the Wine and Spirits, there was, yeah, that was the cover. Okay. Welcome to the show, Caleb. Thank, Thank you, for, you for coming on The Grape Nation. Thanks for having me, Sam. Now, before we get into everything, and there's a lot to talk about, um, I want you to just kind of walk me through your journey in life and wine. 
that got you to where you are now, which is Compagnie. And the last dozen years are impressive and all of that. What I can't figure out is how some little kid from Kankakee or wherever got into wine. So take me, take me up to current. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I don't really understand it either. Okay. It certainly wasn't much of a wine culture in, in at least where I grew up in Illinois. Um, but it was kind of my time in university was really where I, I started falling in love with wine. And that was where? At University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Party school. <laughs> plenty, plenty, yeah. Uh, I had my fair share of beer, I'm sure, too. But um, Yeah, so, I mean, literally, it's it's kind of one of those serendipitous moments where I remember growing up and, you know, my grandparents would go out to eat all the time. And, you know, I was probably the, a rambunctious, you know, grandch- grandchild. And my grandmother once said, you know, oh, you'd make a good waiter one day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. And I just I just walked by this this restaurant that was hiring. It was called Restaurant Timponies. And they were hiring busboys and waiters. So How just, old were you? Uh, I guess I was 19. Okay. 19, just looking for a side gig. And went in, applied. And it was very old school, but like still like r- well run uh, Italian restaurant. And he had a little bit of a wine list there. And I was actually like a daytime bartender eventually. And that was... You know, the person who pretty much just peeled garlic all day long while one person came in and had a burger during during the day. But occasionally I'd get to watch him like tasting wine with the you know reps and everything. And I'd, I got to kind of sample some of the stuff that was open behind the bar and really just kind of started getting mesmerized by by wine. And, you know, I was in a very studious moment in my life. So I started just buying all these wine books and just really just going down the rabbit hole of this grape and that grape and this wine and everything and just trying to understand it. So it was more the situation than any person because a lot of people in your seat have said this person that person you know influenced me the circumstance the restaurant the guy doing the wine i mean i must say i mean while still in illinois and and ray timponi who ran the wine who ran the restaurant there certainly um, embraced you i I wouldn't say it was under his wing as much i definitely learned a lot from him uh, but thad morrow uh he was he had a restaurant called baccaro in champaign urbana illinois and was there for 10 years, and his spirit of hospitality and generosity was what really sparked the interest and really allowed it all to click. I mean, we would have family meal after dinner every day, um, and we would drink all the leftover wines by the glass. And he would cook food, and we'd sit out there and just have, like, the most beautiful moment with your coworkers and drinking wine and food. And That's the team-building hospitality thing yep. that translates out on the floor. For sure. And, I mean, you know, the amount of money he must have spent every day just drinking all the leftover <laughs> wine was, was crazy. But that's how those environments allow you to learn. Very cool. All right. So you're there at the couple of restaurants. I so, think yep. senior year, you go to Paris? Senior year, I did. Um, I went to Paris. Thank you, teacher. And um, I, I wanted to find a job. It was somehow that with the timing, my study abroad was actually the last semester of my undergraduate, you know, career. So then I got to start working after that. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to be here in Paris, I got to find a job where I can transfer. And I knew I was moving to New York afterwards, from Paris to New York. One of the few that, you know, fit that criteria was was Flute Champagne Lounge. There was a small location near the Arc de Triomphe in the 17th, and Got a gig there as like the Sunday American bartender guy and worked maybe you know, four months over there, one day a week, and then transferred over here. I was here same for... Same people there as here or different? Same owner. Same owner, yeah. Flute it was New just, York, Flute Paris. Yep. One guy, uh, Hervé um, Russo, and worked in New York for about four months. It, it, you know, the, the program here was a little less wine-focused than the one in Paris, and after a meal at Danielle, 
um, kind of during my spring break, actually, of that semester before moving, I just got blown away by the service, the, the wine, the food, and I was like, I have to do this. And so I, I quickly joined the Dynex group uh, after moving back to New York. Moving what, to New what York. level did you start at? I I applied for uh, assistant sommelier at Danielle, and I was not nearly qualified enough, but they saw enough ambition, and they kind of threw me into the, I don't know, the pool of workers that they would move around a little bit. And so I, I, my first, I guess, official title was I, I was a captain at uh, um, Bar Playad at the time. Right. And then That's kind of... The cafe or... It's, it's the bar next to Cafe bar, Baloo. Right. right. And then went to DBGB for a little bit because they had somebody, you know, some, some manager kind of hole that I had to fill. But that was a big departure from the service at Danielle, DBGB, right? Yes. Wineless food environment. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, my, one of my first gigs in New York was on the Upper East Side. And you learn very quickly how New Yorkers work when you're <laughs> working on the Upper East Side. Right. And, uh, yeah, and then I went straight to DBGB, and then it was really taking care of the GM, uh, Pierre, who came in with the AGM at the time, just one night late, randomly after their service. I, you know, poured some champagne, did this and all that, and, you know, eventually a, a spot opened up at Danielle, and I was able to move up there working a few different roles. Nice. And you were in Florida for... Yep, so I was with, at, with the Dynex group? With the Dynex group. I was, you know, working under Raj at Danielle for a while, who taught me very much, I owe much Raj of my... Raj is still there, right? Yeah. Yeah, much of my career to him and uh, Daniel Jonas, of course. And you know, after a year and a half at Daniel, doing a few different you know roles, uh, Sam being one of them, I wanted to really kind of move up and take a more you know leadership role within you know a wine program. So um, the role at DB Bistro Modern in Miami opened up, and I jumped at it and moved down there just for a little bit, about six months. So it was more the opportunity than the geography. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted not to, a bad place to go. It was, and it was for the winter too, so right. it worked out very well. That's great. So you're there how long? I was there for about six months, uh, enough to kind of let all the snow, you know, come and go. Right. And then a gig opened up. Uh, Alex Lepratt had left DB Bistro in Midtown, so there was a hole to fill there, and I got to come back up and uh, run the show in, in New York for how long? So at that point, I would have been with the Dynex group for about two and a half, three and a half years, and I was only there for nine months um, in, in that particular role when an opportunity to join 11 Madison Park came up, and I was, you know, I just kind of had to jump at that. Um, yeah. How do you? Yeah. That's sort of top of the game. Yeah. And the job was work on the floors of Somalia. Floor Som, you know, yeah. Who was there? Dustin? Dust, I was under Dustin, yep. Right. And you were there a couple of years. Yep, two years. So you got a pretty heavy dose of what real and good hospitality is. I would say so. I mean, yeah, Dynex has a really good way of, of going about things. Eleven Madison Park does it, of course, in a, in a different but still similar right. way. Right. And it was really nice to see also just even within the Dynex group, the, the Upper East to downtown to the, you know, the, the global clientele at Danielle to Miami and really get a good mix of, of everything. So you do a couple of years at Eleven Madison, which is a pretty good stint and then what happens i i knew i kind of wanted to get into more entrepreneurial role within the wine industry probably running my own wine bar and uh, a mutual friend that i met, met in paris actually um, introduced me to the partners at um, experimental group who you know uh, has company here and it had been open for a year prior to my joining and um a really, really interesting opportunity to kind of come in and, and take it over. Did you know of the place? I had been there, actually, yeah, with that same friend Okay. when it opened. And I came, and, and I enjoyed it. I was like, wow, this is a beautiful cool spot. spot. And yeah. But something about it, I guess, just never really clicked with the local market. And people, it kind of just fell off the radar really quickly. And I knew that was kind of 
like a, you know, blessing and a curse, you know. Um, but I was willing to take that risk and get in there. And so that was what 2014. That was 14. Yeah, March of 14. That's when you started. Or I guess 50. So I did all of 15, all of 16. This is my second year now. Right. All right. So we're going to come back towards the end of the interview and talk about that because sure. there's a lot going on there. But I want to talk to you about a lot of different things about wine. Um, you said stuff like your favorite wine. I like wines with a story, a wine that's made by a person that speaks of place and time. You've called farmers rock stars. You look at it as a you look at a wine list as a playlist. Um, so you have a philosophy on wine. I mean, what what is that philosophy? I mean, how do you see wine? I mean, I see the wines that excite me the most are you know as as you mentioned, wines made by a person that speak of a place and time and. You know, whether that's in Roussillon, France, or it's in Basket Range, Australia, you know, I think if you if you taste the wine and you kind of know a little bit of the story, it should kind of open up more of a more of a story of that about that. You know, for wine's not made in a vacuum; it's made by a. It's the, the fourth element of terroir. You know, you have like macroclimate, microclimate, soil, you know, geography, but you know, humans are a huge component of it. it doesn't right, happen naturally. And we'll get it's an evidence. agricultural product, yes. and there's human interaction. Exactly. The more the less intervention, the better. Yes, and hopefully you can taste all of those components, and the best wines for me do have all of those components that you can talk about. So does that mean a lot of the big Bordeaux's and a lot of these, you know, bigger famous wines, they're just not doing that? The story doesn't match up to what interests you and what you're looking for? For me, it's it's... There's, there's, I feel like there's a place and time for, for almost every wine on the market. I'm not saying that they're, right. all, they're all going to be exciting. And I didn't say you did. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the story that some wines tell um, isn't exactly, for me, a story that people really want to listen to. You know what I mean? Right. And whether it's, it's not necessarily it's a bad wine or a good wine, but, you know, some movies are selling out and some aren't. You know, they could be both great movies. And, right. You know, some fill up the seats. Critically acclaimed, no audience. Precisely. Shitty movie. <laughs> Yeah. Big, you know, whatever. Nine and a half percent alcohol, right. <laughs> red wine. So it's really about the people, the story, the land, the terroir. It's, I mean, I mean yeah. I mean, for me, I think a sommelier is a translator of the winemaker, you know, and right. preferably a farmer. And, you know, it's, you know, we, it's, it's weird because, you know, you know, if you take your vacation, and you go visit a wine, a winery, you're out in the, out in the fields and then you come back to this urban area and you have to somehow try to tell that story of where you were and why this wine tastes like this. And I think that's, for me, the most exciting part. And the translation part is you're the key to exposing people to regions and certain wines that they may not necessarily get in other places. And, you know, we'll get to that. This is a good segue for me because I want to talk about natural wines, natural, organic, biodynamic. Um, and we'll get a little into the definitions and all that but why has interest grown in the past few years like it hasn't in the years previous to that i mean if i can take one minute maybe to kind of for me tell the story of natural wine that i i envision which is it started in the the early 1900s in the Languedoc region of france um there was the farmers who were kind of revolting against a lot of the negociants who were pouring sugar into the wines and they were saying you know vive les vins nature which is essentially just like don't 
pour stuff into my wine. You know, this is even before the. So a guy would toil and make a great wine, and the negotiant would just screw it up by sweetening it, or, or just some, yeah, exactly. I mean, they would just add unnecessary sugar. So the product that went to the consumer was different than what the guy envisioned and farmed, and precisely, okay. precisely. And that was they had a bit, bit bit of an uprising, and so the first term that natural wine you know was associated with was just adding sugar to wine. This was again before the the chemical revolution of the 40s you know so this isn't even this is of course with agri- organic viticulture but then in the 80s kind of became this extra this new organic movement you know post um, all of the you know the chemical fertilizers and you know herbicides and all that and that happened in the food movement as well as the wine movement and that started kind of more in Beaujolais Loire with um, Jules Chauvet and kind of really coming up with ways to make natural wine you know the methods so are you saying around the 80s little before whatever that's when it really ramped up when they were using pesticides and and oh 50s 60s 70s was when it was that everywhere it, it got hit hard that was what people did it was tuesday at noon you go out there and you spray the vineyard it, yeah. but before that and even during that there were people that didn't practice that for sure yeah there were some people who were like you know we don't need this right our grapes are healthy right um but yeah really with the 80s 90s and kind of 2000s this this resurgence of interest in organic you know, whether it's apples or grapes or whatever, it starts to come, and food leads wine. And then I think wine has just really started in the last maybe 10 years, people really getting, you know, the big hullabaloo around natural wines and organic wines and everything. So there is definitely a discernible period of time. I mean, in the last 8, 10 years, the traction definitely is as big or bigger than ever before that, right? Totally. Even though they existed. And guys like you and bars like you, you know, really went out there um, and, and cheerleaded for it. Well, so here's one thing that I have to I have to mention now because it's it's an interesting story that I feel like still hasn't really been told. Compagnie des Vins Naturel was opened in Paris about five six years ago. Right, you didn't say that earlier. Right, so the, the the partners, you know, they had cocktail bars, restaurants, you know, now they have hotels and everything. And I love their philosophy, which is why I joined them. But they also, you know, this was like the height of kind of the natural wine movement in Paris and. You know, you and me have both tasted a lot of really bad natural wine, you know, in quotes. And there were a lot of bars that were just pouring a lot of very bad natural wine and with under the guise of, well, there's nothing in it, so it has to be good. And there can still be a lot of faults in it, even <laughs> sure. though there's no chemicals or whatever. So they wanted to open up a supernatural kind of beyond classification wine bar where you can just go have really good wine, politics aside, you know. And that's really the ethos that I try to embody here in, in New York. And yes, the vast so the majority. name Supernatural. I mean, that followed through their vision into the name and all that for sure. And you know, I while the vast majority of our producers do are you know practicing organic or biodynamic because I think they make those can help make better wines. It's not because of this than that, right? Um, and really, for us, it's the wine in the glass has to be good first, and then we'll work our way backwards. So this is this is a perfect time to ask you this. So there's the whole sustainability aspect, you know, where people are taking care of the land and, you know, they're not using pesticides. I, I don't want to talk about that. You've probably tasted as much or more different organic, biodynamic, natural wines than anybody. You tell me how natural wines differ in taste than regular wines. It's such a big general question, but there definitely has to be, you know, when the word energy comes up or whatever, but 
what is it? And and it's a big box because different regions, different varietals, and all that. I mean, the, the I think the most succinct term I can use is volatile. There's more volatility um, in a natural wine, you know, in quotes, versus a much more stable conventional wine. What do you mean by volatility? It could go bad or... Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Because it's, it's not... It's, it intervene with sulfurs or whatever other stuff. It's... it's the, the flavors are a little bit more spread out. You have, you have more biological activity inside the bottle. You have more living, you know, uh, organisms making all of their little smells and everything inside there. It could be funky. Yeah, exactly. Good funky. Good, yeah. I mean, it's like kombucha. I mean, there are living organisms inside right. a bottle of kombucha. Whereas in most conventional wines, everything's kind of been stabilized. You know, there's not as much living. And in and, and most natural wines, there's still a lot of life literally inside the bottle. And that comes, that comes with, you know, some So that is that liveliness and, energy. Now, how does that affect a winemaker that makes the same wine every year? I, I know vintage by vintage varies, but when you have that variable in there... I mean, is there such a sway with natural wines that you could pick one up and it's so different from, you know, a previous vintage? 100%. I mean... More than other wines. Much more so than other wines. There are some wines where I can pull the trigger and I know I'm going to put it on the list every single year. Usually those are not the natural wines that we feature. The, the more natural ones, and when they're good, they're incredible. You just can't... You can't even duplicate it. And that's the problem with vintage to vintage. I had literally have to taste all these every single year before I can commit to them because one year they're great. The next year there's some weird biological activity happening and I right. can't put that in front of a guest because it just doesn't deliver right. me the same pleasure. So you have to keep your eye out. you got to be very vigilant. <laughs> Excuse me, to what's going on there. Yeah. Um, so the most obvious reason is that regular wines are chemically treated. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I hate, I don't want to throw, you know, too many people under the bus because there's a lot of great wines out there that are conventional, so to speak, that uh, that aren't really, you know, there's not necessarily a whole lot of additions happening. Right. So, I mean, but. And they're not under the category, but they're made low right. intervention and all that. But yeah, you know, they're, they are, there are, you know, more stabilizers you can add. You know, sulfur is one of them. That's a pretty common one. And. You know, it, I think sulfur is overly vilified because there's more sulfur in a box of raisins than there is in a case of wine. Right. You know, so, I mean... It's not the end of the it's world. It's definitely not the end of the world. Yeah. But it is a... It does suppress, you know, biological activity inside the bottle. Right. One way or the other. Which is what... So, give a pitch to my listeners. Why should they buy natural wines? Why should they look for them and pay attention? I'm not saying their whole collection or from here on drink that... But definitely introduce it. What, what are what are they going to get? I mean, and we're talking, you know, it's made in Austria and France and Italy. So we're talking everywhere. But what is buying natural wines? I mean, what's exciting about? For me, I mean, what I love about wine is the hunt of the next great wine, the next great region, you know, the next great vintage, even from the same producers that you know. And with natural wine, you do have this this hunt. It's it's never ending, and it's even a little bit more complex. But the flavors that you can get out of some of these wines are so unique and precious and, and intense sometimes, especially when they're good wines, that it's, it's worth the search and it's worth taking the risk. And it's worth finding, for me, it's worth finding a great you know, retail store or restaurant that's going to source these things for you and developing that relationship where they can introduce them to you. You'll save a lot more money because you're kind of getting them pre-selected and you're, they're getting weeding out the bad ones and only focusing on the good ones. So... 
So if you're inquisitive, you're up for the hunt, you're up to try different things, you're going to experience a variety of wines that you won't necessarily see, you know, in Bordeaux's or Burgundy's or whatever. Yeah, and they're going to be made in, you know, they're smaller, they're smaller production wines typically. And, you know, for me, the, the wine lover is the same person who is willing to travel to any part of the world and just see something unique. Right. Just because it exists, right. you know, and that's, there's the viticultural aspect. I mean, this is human culture we're talking about. Have you traveled much in the last two, three years? Do you try to get out of the States and meet winemakers? And yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I try for, to... For company and for yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I, haven't, I don't think I've taken a vacation in the last <laughs> eight years that wasn't wine-related some, in some way. Um, I was just in the basket range of, of Adelaide Hills in South Australia back in January where, I mean, that's probably one of the most special tiny wine regions I've ever been to with, you know, just passionate people making really great wines. Are they natural, non-intervention? They're very, very low intervention. You know, they're, it's, it's really tough in the new world because you have this separation of grower and, and producer and not very, it's not a lot of vertical integration like there is in Europe where right. you own the domain, your family's had it for generations you control all the viticulture. You know, here it's somebody has the land and they put some grapes in and now they're up for sale. And maybe the person buying the grapes can say, hey, hey let, next year, can you like, you know, farm organically, please? I'd really like to sell an organic wine to my customers. But it's, it's, it's a little bit harder. But they're pushing the director, you know, if right. they're not already organic, they're pushing the growers to go organic. And they're definitely doing things hands off in the cellar. And they're making some great wines at very reasonable prices that I think are super relevant to the entire world. That sounds good. Um, and you're the guy that'll look out for them and bring them in. Precisely. Tell me quickly, outside of France, because I know on your wine list, it's a very uh, Franco-skewing list, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that. Tell me some exciting wine regions. I think you just answered it with Australia. Give me one or two other places that are like that. I think, uh, you know, you have Galicia. Uh, there's some really great Mencias happening in Ribera Sacra. Um, nothing that's really Spain? new. It's in Spain. Okay. Yeah, kind of green Spain. And um, Ribera Sacra is the grape? Or Ribera Sacra is the region. The region. Mm -hmm. And you, you have a lot of Mencia up there. Mencia. That's the grape? Yeah. M-E-N-C-I-A? That's correct. Okay. And a lot of the, you know, and they're planted on very steep slopes overlooking usually, you know, the Atlantic Ocean or kind of the river in between. There's a lot of valleys and things there. And typically old vines, I mean, it's things that you would never replant today. It doesn't make any economic sense. But they're just exquisite, and there's just this, this homage to, to history because they've just been there forever. Are and they reasonably priced? They are. That's the best thing about so it. So it's a, it's a great wine, an interesting story, mm -hmm. and you're not paying through the nose. Give me another. I think Swartland, South Africa. That's a sort of a little natural commune. Kind of a tiny room. little, yeah. It's uh, you know, it's kind of the Bushwick of. Uh, <laughs> What's the grape or grapes they're growing? A lot of inventing. Great Chenin Blancs and great Syrahs. I mean, really, just world class. Uh, I've had from there and. Stylistically, know. I mean, like Loire Chenins or. I've never had. Too, I haven't had too many New World Chenin Blancs that actually, for me, remind me of Loire Chenin Blancs. They honestly usually remind me more of, of Chardonnay. There's typically a little bit of new oak, or there's just a little bit more of this roundness to them, and not quite that piercing, you know, bright acidity that you get in the Loire. But they're still very pleasurable wines in and of themselves, and it's an interesting, different take on on Chenin Blanc as we know it. Right, which, which is interesting in itself. Which is, I mean, such a you know a great multifaceted grape. 
Um, the Syrahs, however, I found to be a little bit more reminiscent of the Northern Rhone. So they're big and chewy and... Extremely aromatic, perfumey, aromatic. pretty, peppery. I mean, you could put it in front of most people and you know they'll say it's San Josef or Crozer Hermitage from a great producer. So Swartland, South Africa, Ribera de Sacra. Ribera Sacra. Sacra, not there. And which part of Australia were you talking about? Very specifically, the Basket Range in the Adelaide Hills. Adelaide Hills. Okay. What excites you more, red or white wines? I definitely drink much more white wine. Why? I think it's just more refreshing. It isn't like red, you know, the deal. That's where all the complexity and history, the Burgundies, the Bordeaux, you know, the Penfold Granges, all this stuff. And, you know, white, there's a handful of that. It, it's, it's, you're caught up more in refreshment and taste. It's, I mean, whites are definitely more subtle. Reds are a little more, they kind of can hit you over the head. But I think it's much easier to make a, a good red than a good white. So by habit, you're, you are drinking more white, you know, white wine? White and sparkling and rosé. All right. So why don't people think of champagne as wine? You know, why... I mean, more and more. We talk about it on this show all the time. There's a lot of cheerleaders. I know that you have it on your wine list at reasonable rates, so you're obvious. Why don't people think of it? You're doing your little part in changing that, but what do you think it is? I mean, you have friends that are not wine geeks but like to drink it, and they don't think of it. You know, what do we tell these people? I think the, the Champenois have done a very good job of branding themselves as their own thing, which is kind of what they wanted. Now I think you know you have this the newer generation of, of of winemakers in Champagne who are really trying to make wine first and the bubbles second. Are those the grower guys? Those are definitely more the growers. Okay, you know they're focusing on single vineyards, parcels, you know micro vinifications, you know really small production, and in order to put Champagne on the label, they have to put some bubbles in it. Right. But they really want the base wine to be a fantastic wine, and then they get to make an even better wine through secondary fermentation. Right. So That's you don't have that house style. It's it's. Each vineyard has their own terroir and style, and there's you know interesting output and all. Precisely. Of when you look at champagne, are you just as excited at other sparklers, Cremant, Petnat, the grower we just talked about, Cavas? I mean, are those? I I you know I love all sparkle. I mean, I don't say I every single sparkling wine in the world. You like bubbles. I love bubbles, and I think when they're done very well, the A, they don't have to be very expensive. I mean, champagne can be a little pricey, but, I mean, there's some great champagnes that, you Give know, me one or two. Uh, let's go Champagne brand. or non-sparkling? Let's go champagne, and let's go 50 up or down a few bucks. I mean, if you can find it, Bereche Fis. B-E-R-E-C-H-E. Yep. F-I-L-S. Yeah, okay. yeah, Bereche Efis. Um, is about a $50 killer bottle of champagne. Yeah, even less. I mean, you can walk into a couple stores. I mean, New York, it's going to be hard, but like any other market that has it, it'll probably be sitting on the shelf, and you can grab it for about 45 bucks. Give me one more. Uh, Grognier has been a really... Spell. G-R-O-N-G-N-E-T. Grognet. Grognet. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> okay. Um, they're a member of the Special Club, which is like a small producer, uh, small club with like 27 grow producers, kind of like peer-reviewed wines. They put you know, some of their best wines in this you know, uniform bottle label, and they market it. One of the best deals, not necessarily the Special Club, that's not f quite 50 bucks, but um, just their intro, Blanc de Blanc, could probably sit on a shelf for around 45. It's a great story, too. Yeah. Um, what about non-champagne? I mean, is Cremant, is that a good... Cremants, there can be some 
incredible Cremants. We just discovered that's Alsatian. Well, there's pretty much every major wine region in France can have a Cremant from there, even okay. Bordeaux. Okay. Um, Cremant de Jura, I think you know Dementisos, Cremant de Jura's rival. Some of the you know, that's from some the, of the Jura best region. Yeah, from the okay. Jura region. J U R A. Using the same grapes as Champagne, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. And there's some great pet nats, the Le Capriade, C-A-P-R-I-A-D-E-S, in, in Touraine, in the Loire. They make the best pet nat I've ever had. I mean, So as a trained wine drinker, and I've had people explain the difference between pet nat, one sure. fermentation versus champagne. Just tell me, in your opinion, the difference between a really good pet nat and a good champagne. What, bubble size, you know, dryness, sweetness. What's the difference? Well, oftentimes, you know, so pet nats are, you know, pet nat stands for petillant naturel, right? Which is the method ancestral way of making sparkling wine versus the method champenoise. Um, essentially, method ancestral, you're bottling wines that aren't done fermenting off of their primary sugar and yeast. In champagne, you take a, a finished wine, stable wine, bone dry. You put it back in the bottle, and you add yeast, and you add sugar, um, which you know has its own ups and downs, but that's, that's the way you make champagne. There are two distinct fermentations, fermentations, both finishing to completion. In pet nat or method ancestral, you're, doing, you're starting fermentation in one place, you're pouring it into a bottle, you're capping it off, and you're finishing fermentation there. So technically, it's fermented out of the bottle? It starts out of the bottle. Out of the bottle, Typically, right. yeah. <clears throat> I got and, it. And then you'll have 1.5% or so alcohol to go throw it into bottle and the same yeast and the same sugar that were already present, which is why I think you're finding this resurgence because you're not adding sugar. Right. You're just dealing with what the grapes gave it. Right. Um, and then stylistically, just because you had asked, um, usually bigger bubbles in pet nat. It's a little bit less refined. Um, pet nats can also be variable in terms of sweetness and dryness just because it's it's not exactly an exact science. It's a little well, more... That's what we art. were talking about earlier. Each bottle, vintage, you know, it's sort Precisely. of a... A different party in each bottle, and yeah. that's kind of why you do it. With champagne, you get the style or... It's much more system- systematic in champagne, for sure. All right, I want to switch over to Compagnie. A lot of stuff going on there. Let's talk about that for a minute. But I picked up somewhere, and tell me if this is something you want to talk about. You're working on a wine education app. Is that like a secret, or is that too small of a project to waste my time with, or what? There what are do you want still to... a lot of variable. Um, there's still a lot of variables yet to be determined in that, so I can't really talk too much about it. Okay, but can you do... talk about the objective, or that yeah. would reveal too much? No, no, no. I mean, I think you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're definitely proud of what we're doing. Um, we want to. And, you know, demystify wine a little bit and give people, I mean, the amount of times people are like, oh, I really want to learn more about wine, you know. Let's give them the tools to do that. And, we're, you know, we partnered with people who are very good at teaching people things, you know. So they specialize in that. We specialize in wine. We're kind of putting those two together. They have the systems. We have the knowledge and kind of just really trying to, to streamline it. So that's stay uh, tuned. Demystify is a word we use in describing this show. This yeah. show's for the consumer. You know, we want people to walk away. And not say what, right. but maybe walk away with two, three recommendations from you or really understand the difference. And, Absolutely. You know, you'll let us know when that happens. And we also use, you know, the phrase actually <laughs> to bring the wine to the people, bring the people to the wine, you know. So uh, ours is we bring wine to the people. Precisely, yeah. Service mark. Um, all right, let's talk about company. Sure. So you opened, what'd you say, in 14 or 15? Or no, they opened in 14, you got there in Precisely. 15. All right, so give me. The mission statement. I mean, 
you got there and I'm sure you changed things and what you want to do when you walk in there, you want to accomplish what with the customer? I mean, I want, I want the guests to come in and have one of their best wine experiences they've ever had in their lives. And, it and that's by way of what? What are the three, four things that, you know, deals that to the customer? So, I mean, just starting with, you know, basic things that we changed, a happy hour. You know, we take $5 off every single wine by the glass. So you can really come in and, and we, by the way, our by the glass menu changes all the time. Like we reprint probably two or three times a week, buying, you know, putting on even just like a few bottles here and there just to, to share. So your wine list you switch it up every few weeks. Oh, so you got the regulars, and there's always going to be new stuff on, a few things off and all of that. Exactly. So first, yeah, we want to kind of tantalize with the, the changing options. We want, to, we want people to know that they can come there and taste something new and something delicious, something we've been, like, tasting recently that we're excited about. What kind of bottle count are you holding? Oh, gosh. Uh, Six, seven hundred bottles? Uh, I mean, different. On the list, yeah, about, yeah, different references probably, yeah. And the list is, what, 20, 30 pages? It's about 20, yeah, we've been growing it, so about 20, yeah, precisely. And it is predominantly French. Predominantly French. I mean, I, you know, that's, that's my palate. Um, that's Within why. French, where's the biggest play? Burgundy and Champagne, and then Loire. And, you know, some, some micro regions that we focus on, like Calts and Roussillon, C-A-L-C-E. It's right. a town of 200 people. And Roussillon, Languedoc? Yeah, yeah, so specifically Roussillon, which is French Catalonia. I mean, culturally, it's its own sort of thing. And there's a town there with 200 people, and there are six extremely high-quality winemakers. Really? Different domains present here in New York. I mean, it's, for me, that's just crazy. That blows my mind. So, so you're showing that included... 600 different choices you're seeing or five six total yeah with, yeah you know, france italy you know spain Australia. now why we didn't talk about burgundy much um but burgundy's heavy on the list because that's what the market you know wants to see and drink to it's you know burgundy was one of my first first loves um it's something i just went there for the first time actually um with with daniel Jonas and the la Palais scholarship which was an amazing honor and opportunity were you a La Palais scholarship recipient? Yep. Oh, yep. you were. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was, I, I literally had been waiting to go for years. Right. I was like, I'm not touching, I'm not even going to Beaujolais just in case that counts, you know. Um, and that was just so eye-opening. And I've always loved Burgundy and it's always been, you know, a rabbit hole I've loved going into. Right. You know, but like, you know, people just want to drink it now, like especially Chablis, like higher acid whites, you know, fresh mineral styles, reds. Um, you know, I mean, people love, I mean, Beaujolais is definitely a growing list portion, portion on our list right now. Um, a lot of the Burgundy is certainly more. So when we say Beaujolais, stuff. Beaujolais is a region of Burgundy. It's yeah. And people don't always associate, you know they associate it with that Thanksgiving crap and all that. It's there's some you know good Beaujolais being made. Gamay is a great grape. Oh my gosh, there's some incredible Beaujolais being made. There's a lot of Beaujolais that are selling for more than Burgundies now. I mean, we're gonna in ten fifteen years, it's. We're going to be having to find a new region to talk about. Now's the time to buy that and Barolo sure. before it goes up to oh, For sure. Um, so a good play on Burgundy is Beaujolais. And what else? Like Bourguignons? Yeah, we have a lot of, you know, some Bourgogne Rouge. I mean, really great just producers, like their entry level. Right. Um, you know, of course, it's, you know, it's the Pinot Noir from France and the original Pinot Noir. And if you, you will. curate. I mean, the stuff I assume you're carrying is the stuff that you like and, yeah. and tastes, you know. And we think over delivers for the, for the price and gives it, you know, a tremendous value. And also just tracking down the really hard to find producers and letting people know that they can come drink them there. Right. Raveneau, Rumier, Meunier. Um, so besides 
looking for all these new producers, natural guys. All the heavy hitters are there too. You know, you just mentioned a few. Tell me what and and tell me if I'm pronouncing it right. Enomatic wine machine is sure. Enomatic, enomatic. Yeah, enomatic. It kind of came on the market before Coravin did, but essentially, it's like a massive Coravin, and it puts wines on draft, so to speak. So, t- tell people what a Coravin is. So, it's yeah, a sorry. way. Essentially, it's um, it's it's like a draft beer system, but you're using argon instead of carbon dioxide to push out the wine, and argon and, is heavier than air and preserve it. Yeah, so argon flushes into the bottle. You pop the bottle. You put a little tube in, and kind of, and you push the the piston up and it kind of creates a nice seal with the gasket and and then it flushes the bottle with argon so argon's heavier than air air is really the enemy oxygen to wine um so argon is neutral and it sits on top of the wine and you know doesn't interact with wine um and then you press you know a couple different buttons you push out a couple different sizes and it preserves the wine now we don't have a ton of crazy crazy expensive wines by the glass we have you know some you know everywhere from 10 to 25 dollars it's a chance for you to it's a way for us to kind of at least slow down the oxidation process and allow, you know, all the wines to to be served within their time frame and to not, you know, go bad. Right. But for me, it's really more the temperature, which is, I think, a massive thing. I mean, all of our wines... The way it's served. ...by the glass, by the bottle, are stored and served at the appropriate temperature, so to speak. All right. So I'm going to... We're going to take a break in a few minutes. Sure. But we're going to do a lightning round here, and I think a lot of what we're going to talk about in this lightning round defines compagnie so i'm gonna throw stuff at you and i want you to tell me what it is i think you're still doing it so let's talk about it sure somakasi so omakasi is chef's choice in japanese you preceded it with som so it's a want tell me what song you're doing somakasi now all all day every day tell me what soma you go into compagnie I want a somakase, 60 bucks. Tell me what it is. Um, it's essentially a, a bespoke wine tasting. You know, a sommelier omakase where we, you know, you can put your entire trust in us and we'll bring you some great wines that we're excited about. Or you can say, you know, I usually like full-bodied reds. Little, yeah. Right. Okay. Bring me some full-bodied reds that, you know, that you're excited about too. So. And the point of entry cost-wise is? So it, it kind of came from a tasting menu sort of philosophy where, you know, you kind of either got locked in at a certain price. And it's just a way to really just get the pesky idea of price out of the way. 30, 60, or 90 is what we do. So three choices. Exactly. And then within that, you How can How many either, wines are we tasting? Usually about four to five at each okay. level. Um, That's but, a very cool way with a wine list like that. Yeah. With people that are passionate to get some good wines in front Absolutely. of Absolutely. All right. Guess the wine. Yeah. So we have a mystery wine. That's not a program I started, but it's one I inherited and, and love. Um, I wasn't sure how people were going to respond to it, but people just, they love it. They sit down and, you know, whether you're in the industry or not, like, oh, mystery wine. Guess the wine win the bottle. And New Yorkers are very so competitive. So something on the list. It's in the full wine list, under $100. And it's an open and book test. And you order, you say, give me a glass of mystery wine, yep. pay whatever it is. 15 bucks all the and time. And if you guess what the wine is. Yep, you, you win a bottle of it. And what kind of success rates are we talking here? We have, I mean, it, it, it varies, but I would say we have about two to three winners every month. Okay. Yeah, because I, I was kind of tracking it and I'm like, Jesus, some Moroccan wine or something you yeah. poured? It's like you're killing us here, you know. And but two people guessed it literally in I the know, same day. I saw that. I saw two. Yeah. You know, a lot of times it's one. All right, you do a thing called mixtape. Yeah, sommelier mixtape or wine mixtape. Uh, we actually have chef mixtape too. So this was a way it, for me. It was an anti-wine dinner. Um, so rather than going to a wine dinner with the wine winemaker and tasting all of their wines, 
this was a, a, pl- a way to have the winemaker pour the wines that inform their palate uh, or wine personality. And it's really the wines that they're excited about. Maybe a couple that tell their personal story or projects they're working on. You know, Larry Stone did one recently. And he poured a couple of his lingua franca, but he also poured some other stuff that he yeah, was excited. Northern to Rones ex- and Pet Nats and all, you know, some crazy stuff. And so it's DJ and wine. Yeah. And I'll, there's a music a last mixtape. So I have them say, is, you know, is what, the music component controlled by you or the I curate, host? I curate from their selection. Okay. Just so to you, keep it on brand. You do you know? like a yeah. food music pairing. Precisely. All right. Humbled, H-U-M-B-L, capital E-D. Yes. So this was very much inspired by Dan Barber's um, Wasted right. sort of um, idea. And we wanted to work with one farm, one season, and just kind of make an entire menu out of what you can go there and get. So rather than going to the farmer's market and just picking up what they want to sell, we go visit the farm and we try to look outside of the normal fields and we say, hey, what, what else is growing out here? What, what are you not necessarily bringing to market but that you grow? And the idea was... If we were stuck on the farm and we had to make a meal with only you know the ingredients that were the, around us, what what would we do? And that's what that's what we try Very to do. Cool. And you do that how often? Um, usually, pr- we try to do once once a season. So try f- try for four times a year. Okay. Towards the end of the show, we'll talk to people sure. about websites and mailing lists and all that totally. stuff. All right. Last thing, you have thirty seconds. You've done and you will do theme parties. Yeah. What have you done? What are you going to do? Um, so last year we did Jurassic Park pop-up NYC. <laughs> okay. Um, which essentially was a Jura-themed, dino-themed wine party. And we invited people to dress up as dinosaurs or their Jurassic Park movie, uh, favorite, favorite movie character. And we just opened up a ton of crazy Jura wine, had some fun past roar d'oeuvres, as we like to call them. And we're doing another one this year, and I want to bring this to the whole world. So I'm, I'm trying to partner with a bunch of different wine bars and restaurants from Melbourne, Australia, to Paris, to Austin, multiple Texas. Multiple one-night, multiple on the same locations. Night. June 25th is what we're shooting for now, so stay tuned. And it's called Jurassic... So this is going to be called Jurassic World Global world. Pop-Up. Cool idea. All right, we're talking to Caleb Ganser from Compagnie downtown in New York City. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we get back, we're going to subject Caleb to our wine list, and then we're running out of time, so we're going to zoom through the wine list, and then Caleb is going to try to guess our weekly wine sip. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an employee stock ownership plan, or ESOP. 
Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's it's more than just a job. And, And obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we're back. We're back with our guest, Caleb Ganser, wine director and managing partner at Compagnie on Center Street, downtown in New York, in Soho. All right, Caleb, you got to work with me. We got to work quick. We're going to do our wine list, and then we're going to taste a little wine, and I'm going to send you back to work. Sounds good. So... First question on the wine list. What are you drinking now? I don't mean that glass of beer in front of you. What do you keep going back to? Is it seasonal? Are you trying? Gosh. Um, I, I told you to go fast. I know. This, this is like that question everybody always asks me and never have a good answer to. Um, I mean, yeah, pet nets. We always try to have a good pet net on. And that's probably one of the first okay. things I'll pour for myself. All right. Um, give me your favorite wine and food pairing. Your personal one, not what you like to serve, not what people request, but what's comfort to you? One of the best memories I had with food and wine that I, I love repeating is a Sancerre. I had a Cotin de Chevignon in the Sancerre center of town with a glass of white Sancerre. So Sancerre is a white region of France. In what, the Loire Valley with Sauvignon Blanc the as Loire, the grape. Right. And a very mineral Sauvignon Blanc with a really kind of acidic, kind of chalky goat cheese. It's just Which is made in that area, too. In that too. area. It's just one of those, like, so perfect. Just a natural. Together, glows, you know, that's goes, a good one. Together. All right. Besides Compagnie, give me your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. I'm going to do Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn. Rouge Tomat. You could do Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Paris, if you remember. Sure. I mean, people love to hear this. All right, so I Manhattan. Think, yeah, I think, you know, Rouge Tomat, I think Pascaline's list Pascaline's is incredible. It. And it's it's a really fun list to drink off of, both classics and, you know, kind of new stuff. Uh, Reynard, I thought, you know, I've, I've just spent more time and money there than, you know, I just think it's such a great restaurant that changes all the time, very focused and in, curated. In uh, Brooklyn. In, in Williamsburg, yeah. yeah. What about Brooklyn? Oh, no, you said Reynard Brooklyn. Yeah. I'm sorry. Now, can you recall anything from Paris? Traveling or from the old days? Ventre. It just opened. Spell it. Marco Pelletier, um, V-A-N-T-R-E. Ventre. Uh, it, it's, he was the chef, uh, chef sommelier at Le Bristol for quite a while. Um, and his connections with winemakers and his knowledge of wines, you know, what's happening today uh, is, is truly incredible. You know, you won't necessarily go there and drink Raveneau, but you'll drink Francois Raveneau's favorite winemaker in Chablis. Well, and that's that cool. is cool. So that's sort of a hot tip because that's a new place, right? Pretty new. It's, right. it's already so pretty hard to get into. But V-A-N-T-R-E. Ventre. All right. Give me your favorite all-time wine. 
Was it a birth wine? Is it the wine that got you into wine? Is it something you had in your wine travels that stopped you in your tracks? I think one of the most exemplary wine moments I had, and certainly the first one of the first aha moments, and for many reasons I love this story because you know it's in it was in Chicago. It was at Charlie Trotter's. It was like my twenty second birthday. I saved a bunch of money up and went, and we just had the full tasting menu. We opted for the, the high end wine pairings, right? And it was one of the first restaurants to go really big on you know great vintages of Burgundy and Bordeaux, and they had you know this is before prices got crazy, right? So with the high end wine pairing and the meal, you know I mean it's you know what five hundred bucks or something, but they were pouring nineteen eighty two Aubryon. By Great vintage year. I mean, that's a two, three, four thousand dollar bottle of wine now. Is Aubryon a first growth? Yeah. So it's a first growth, first vintage growth year, expensive, the, one of the best years, and and it just, delivered to you. It was it was incredible. It was with you know some painted hills farm or whatever beef and right one carrot, <laughs> some jus, but it was just that moment was uh, was really special. So a nineteen eighty two Aubryon. All right, that's a good one. All right, last question, and you may have answered it with favorite wine restaurant and our bar, but it may give you a chance to expand it. Mm. Who else out there, because the reason I brought you in here is I think you're doing it well, but who else out there is doing it well as a wine person and a wine place? Pascaline's a good example. Rouge Tomat's a great place. Pascaline's a great personality. You know, here's a chance... Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, Jeff Kellogg came to, to New York at Maialino and just destroyed that list. I yep, mean, a, great Italian like, list. Bought, you know, I mean, the champagne that he could put on for the prices, the old Barolo, the old Amaro. I mean, he just really had fun and celebrated the wines that that region, that one, that restaurant focused on and just brought it to the people. And, you know, champagne's just, great with pizza, too. Great with pizza. And I just think he did a great job at, at, at Maialino. And now he's going to be, I think, um, at... The Four Seasons, the new opening. The new, so, yeah. the Carbone guys. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was very much inspired by what he did there. Yeah. Um, Give me one more. I mean, I love what's happening nowadays in, in New York uh, with, with champagne prices getting quite more reasonable. Um, and um, his name's Matthew. He's running the program at Del Posto right now. And he's dropping prices over there and um, making some, making some and champagnes very reasonably priced. So... Back to our conversation before a little, you know, why aren't people drink, drinking champagne? Now you got people that are really starting to cheerlead it and bring it on the list, right? It's, it's one of those things that, you know, when I was working at the restaurants I was working at, we had massive champagne lists. Not many people would ever really pull the trigger on it. And I was always like, why? We have such great producers right. and vintages. And, yeah, it's a little expensive and not a lot of people get it, so... People don't really drink it, but industry drinks it. I mean, we're the ones out there, I think, pulling the trigger on a lot of these expensive bottles. Yeah. Nice um, to hear. Yeah. All right. We're going to finish the show with our last segment, the weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on the air. Usually I will tell you what it is, but, you know, after sitting with Caleb for about an hour, you know, you peg him as a pretty smart guy, passionate. Let's see if he could deliver. So I brought a wine. Excuse me. I'm moving around. I brought a wine in for Caleb. It's nothing fancy. It's readily available. Price, region, and all of that. And we're going to taste it. And I'm going to see if Caleb could tell us what it is. And then we will reveal it to you. And it should be a good wine. This is definitely a taste of my own medicine. People nah, <laughs> play you the, know what? the mystery wine all the time. I, I didn't set you up here. I promise you. 
All right, so we're looking at a red wine, first of all. Pretty dark, deep purple. I'll yep. give the description. G- give me the color. Dark. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I would say, ruby, dark ruby, purple with, you know, violet hues. Give me the nose. These, uh, these plastic cups are... They're not helping <laughs> you, but you gotta improvise. Yeah, exactly. I don't get it. I mean, it's a lot of black fruits, like, you know, pretty, like, blackberry jam, and, um, it's, it's definitely on the more confiture kind of, uh, jammy sort of okay. flavors. Okay, definitely br- black fruits. All right, let's throw it over the tongue. Anything else on the nose? It's pretty straightforward on the nose. Mouthfeel, medium body. Um, Light, medium. Medium plus, you know. All right. Give me some uh, palate descriptors. You know, the the nose kind of transfers to the palate, so you got that that blackberry kind of, you know, almost blackcurrant jam. Um, It's not sweet, but it just has that that texture of, of, of jam and jelly. Um, maybe some black plum, but definitely get on the black fruit profile. Um, not necessarily a ton of complexity, but it is pleasant. It's not inoffensive, or it give, is inoffensive. Give me a region. Gosh. Stop it. Come <laughs> on. The re- I didn't ask you that. What's the region? Well, I mean, there's a lot of regions. Give me your guess. California. Really? All right, so we'll do the reveal now. I'll hand you the bag. You sure. can open it up. I'll read it to the audience. So we're tasting a 2015, so it's young, Michel Chapoutier. Okay. Le Vin de Bila Haute Côte de Rousillon Village. Oh. Yep. The wine is made by, and help me here, the wine's made by a well-known Rhone producer, right? Yep. I mean, his wheelhouse is more Rhone. For sure. Um, and this wine retails for 12 to 15 bucks. Yeah. You know, at better wine stores. You're not going to walk into a crappy wine store and uh, see this. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can you tell me about this wine? I mean, so, uh, yeah, so Michel, Ch- Michel Chapoutier makes this wine. The Bila O is his Roussillon Languedoc project. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's, what he's doing is a really good thing and working in areas that are, have a, a little bit more, uh, a lot of growers, but a, a lot of hard way. They don't have like the best ways to find the market. So he's helping a lot of those grapes find the market, and putting some really high quality stuff into into bottles at, at reasonable prices. Um, and I, you know, I, it's hard to it's hard to taste the wine and find all the complexity again in this uh, in this particular vessel. Right. But uh, no, it was it was good. I mean, I enjoyed what, it. What um, what's a good food pairing for this? So I mean, this is something. This is this is an everyday wine. I think it kind of falls into that everyday price point. This is something that you know, depending on what you're having. I mean, this I would love to have this right next to a burger. I would definitely crush a couple of glasses of that barbecue. You know, more meat heavy. I think would work okay. pretty well, or more stewed. I had actually this uh, for lunch today from this Korean place, uh, the bulgogi beef. So be good thing. with that. I think that'd be great. You know, because there's a lot of spice and yeah. you got the beef aspect and all yeah. of that. Um, all right, so. Do we like this wine? I think it's good. I mean, for the money, twelve to fifteen bucks. Very young, two thousand fifteen. Good for value. Sure. My kid's twenty seven. He's going to his friend's house for dinner. They're going to make bulgogi. Brings three bottles of this. Costs him thirty seven bucks. That's it's awesome. a good play for that. One hundred percent. There's All a great right. rosé and a white that they make too that are right. also great values. Okay. Um, do you have this on your wine list? We have the rosé. You do? Yeah. All right. I forgot on the wine list to ask you, and this plays into it, but 
I always ask everyone, best wine around 15 bucks retail, red and white. So a partial answer is this. Yeah. This isn't a bad play for 15, a little over, a little under. Give me another red and give me a white. I'm going to throw a sparkling in real quick. Okay. Just because I Don't think mind it's that. The, the Cava, the Freshenet. It's like ten dollars. Okay. Black bottle. I mean, so Fresenet, which everyone sees, is a great value for ten bucks. For ten bucks, so that's you our can't white. Find a better sparkling wine. Give me a red. We'll go with this. Uh, for red, I mean, yeah, the Bila. Oh, I mean, most things from you can find a lot of Languedoc and Roussillon wines at that price point, um, and they're they're going to over deliver. So this is a wine for twelve, thirteen bucks over delivering. Great with the foods we mentioned to pair it. And it will always be good. All right, so that's the uh, 2015 Michel Chapoutier Levine de Billahote Cote de Rousillon Village. Um, we liked it. All right, we're going to wrap up. If you have a question, wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at the Grape Nation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Follow us on Facebook, The Grape Nation, backslash The Grape Nation. Instagram, S Ben Ruby, and Twitter, at Ben Ruby with no S. And we're going to be launching our website soon. We want to thank our guest, Caleb Ganser, um, from La Compagnie de Sur Naturel in New York City. There's a lot going on there, so let's talk about how people could know what's going on. Let's talk website, mailing list. Give me some ways to The two best ways um, to follow along. I mean, the first is is our Instagram. We post a lot of things there, Um, upcoming events. So Compagnie NYC, C-O-M-P-A-G-N-I-E, NYC. And our website, we post all the uh, events on the website. The wine list is on it. Yeah, yeah, everything. We try to be as communicative as possible. The events that we talked about. For sure. Um, And then you can sign up for a mailing list on there as well. Cool. All right, so thank you, Caleb. Try to get down to uh, Compagnie. Caleb is there all the time. So if you're there, look for him, ask for him. Tall, thin, dapper, handsome man. You can't miss him. But he also has a great crew on the floor working with him. Awesome, awesome crew. Awesome. Thank you to our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.